Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info Otis Redding did not live to see Sittin' on the Dock of the Bay become a major hit, but his legacy lives on through his music, education programs, and now a children's book. He told his family, according to my uncle from like the age of eight, that he was going to be a star. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, hear from Otis Redding's family as we pay R-E-S-P-E-C-T to the legendary Georgian. And 2020 marks 100 years since women won the right to vote. White women, that is. It did not allow for the suffrage movement to really move into an area where they could really address the issues of all women. How women shifted politics and became the most coveted demographic in 2020. A lot of times when people don't know their power, they can't really create the change that we want to see. The push to get women into the voting booth and on the ballot. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. While the 19th Amendment was passed by Congress 100 years ago last month, it was on August 26th of 1920 that the Proclamation of Women's Rights to Vote was officially signed by the Secretary of State. The fact that so few people know August 26th is Women's Equality Day underscores that while much progress has been made over the last century, there is still a long way to go. Last week, GPB celebrated Women's Equality Day with a panel of storytellers, activists, and scholars. We talked about the advances in women's rights and representation and how to move the needle further. My guests were Dr. Pearl Dow, professor of political science and African-American studies at Emory University, Sam ramirez Herrera, a social entrepreneur and activist who founded the Atlanta-based creative content agency Off the Record, which focuses on uplifting marginalized creatives and community stories. And Sandy Ratley, executive producer for Unladylike 2020, a PBS video series profiling remarkable women throughout history. Before the event, we watched a couple of Unladylike shorts, including one profiling Sonora Webster Carver, who grew up in Waycross, Georgia, and went on to become one of the first female horse divers, performing for decades after an accident left her blind. In 1932, less than a year after her accident, Webster made her comeback and continued diving blind for 11 years. After considering the matter from every angle, I decided that the best strategy I could adopt would be to treat my blindness as if it were a minor detail rather than a major catastrophe. The show must go on. I asked Sandy how she whittled down her series to just 26 unsung women total. When we look at history, there are so many architects. And oftentimes what we're taught in school and some of the narratives that we get, we only get a few names that kind of stand out. And so what we were trying to do with Unladylike 2020 is to say there are so many people, so many women in particular, and women of color who are architects of the democracy experiment in this country. And we don't know their names. We don't know many of the first. We don't know their accomplishments. So some of the factors we were looking at was diversity in terms of um, women's nationality, gender, ethnicity, the regions of the country that were represented, the areas of accomplishment um, in which these women excelled. And so as filmmakers, we um, just did many, many configurations of, you know, well, we can we need an artist here, we need someone from the South here, you know, just trying to put together a composite. Hmm. 
Well, Sam, I want to ask you about that. I know that intersectionality and representation is a big part of your work as an entrepreneur, advocate, and you describe yourself as a storyteller at heart. So what kind of considerations do you make in deciding what kind of stories of women in your community you're highlighting or supporting? Yeah, so for me, it's like super important that, um, you know, I am a self-taught um, filmmaker and I know what it's like to be liberated by sharing your story. Um, growing up as an undocumented person here in America and having to learn all of these different skills myself, I know that sharing my story was what empowered me. And so when I'm looking for other stories to tell, particularly the stories of women, I think about women who haven't had the opportunity to use their voice to speak up and to share their story. Um, so for me, it's very important that as we're out there looking for stories to tell and to uplift, that we look in places where there's not always a uh, light that shines on certain individuals. And also stories, you know, I hate the word marginalized often because I feel like most individuals really are systemically oppressed, right? And so when I think about the way that we tell stories, I look for spaces where Again, there's not a light often shown and go there and listen and bring those stories to the forefront. Well, the stories that we have had, at least predominantly in the forefront, at least of suffragists, is the white woman in their wide brim hats and their high-waisted skirts um, marching with signs. Pearl, your expertise is in Black women's political leadership and civic ambition. So, so how were Black women represented in the suffragist movement, especially here in the South, to get to some of those stories that we don't normally hear? Well, Black women were in the suffrage movement really during Reconstruction. Black women would ostracize Black men who did not vote or they voted Democrat. So, for example, Black women would take out flyers and church bulletins in local black newspapers and say, Tom Jones is voting a Democrat. Don't court him. Don't have him over to your home. Don't give him a job. So black women are advocated, but they also were very conscious of the choices that were good for themselves in the black community. And so for black women, particularly in the South, suffrage becomes bigger. It is not just about voting. It is also about advocating for these issues around um, Jim Crow, advocating for issues around reenfranchisement of black men, opportunities for education. And so it becomes this holistic approach um, that black women were bringing to the movement. Unfortunately, it was ignored by white suffragists, um, particularly when we look at how race divided the movement. That was a major issue because what it did was it did not allow for the suffrage movement to really move into an area where they could really address the issues of all women. Because as we move from suffrage to the New Deal era and into the women's rights movement, these issues about education and access and class become dominant issues that the women's movement struggled to address and to bring in women who were not middle-class white women. Right. So so they dragged that along from movement to movement, not having really settled it in the early years of, of let's say, the post-abolition movement, because didn't the suffrage movement sort of grow out of that? It did, because the women who were the initial organizers, the early organizers, that's how women, particularly um, middle-class white women, they really began to organize around abolition and the temperance movement. But even then, Black women were not 
completely involved. They were not allowed to attend many of these meetings or conventions as they were referred to at the time. This issue is one that is never addressed, it's, it's ignored. And black women really show white women how to organize because one of the things that's really unique and different about black women's suffragists is that it crossed class because of what suffrage meant and what these women wanted suffrage to give them. Yeah, so this is something that continues, and I want to definitely pick up on that because we want to look at what is going on now. You know, the women's vote, the um, suburban mom, which is code, I think, for white women, affluent women for the most part, is one of the most courted and perhaps decisive votes of election 2020. We certainly saw the at the Republican National Convention, there was a lot of courting of that vote, and of course, Democratic voters want that as well. But black women have been a dependable voting block for Democrats for a long time. And I'm wondering how that has shaped, if we're looking at the long arc of women's history and women's political influence in the U.S., how much, what does that mean, Pearl? I'll ask you first, and then we can expand this conversation out. Well, you pretty much covered it in your question. So we have this perception that women, overall, just women, vote Democratic. Well, women do tend to vote more Democrat for the Democratic Party than the Republican Party than men. However, when we really look at the data points, white women have only voted more Democratic in two elections since 1952, 1964 and 1996. They pretty much break even between both parties. It has been Latinas and Black women that have pulled women towards Democrats. So by not looking at the data and ignoring Black women particularly, we have not really looked at who are the women that are voting for this party. Um, And so it's no surprise when we see some of the data that we saw from 2016. And even if we look at what happened here in Georgia um, with the gubernatorial race, right, in which 70% of white women voted for Kemp, but 92% of non-white women voted for Stacey Abrams. And so we continue to see these patterns. And so I think oftentimes because of how we have conflated race and gender, that we really have not really understood how white women actually vote and how they see themselves in politics. You're listening to my conversation with Sandy Ratley, Sam Ramirez Herrera, and Dr. Pearl Dow. They joined me for a panel discussion commemorating both the 19th Amendment and Women's Equality Day. So uh, to just carry this idea of some of this was baked in the cake historically, Sandy, I want to ask you about that. From your research on both black and white women during the suffrage movement after, you know, late 19th to early 20th century, how did they work together or apart? I think that um, both uh, you, Virginia, and Pearl stated that the abolition movement and the suffrage movement were totally entwined until the issue of the 15th Amendment and voting rights for black men became an issue. And so this was, this was where really the suffrage movement and the abolition movement split. And you saw some of the leaders of the suffrage movement, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, actually using some very, very racist rhetoric that smacks very much of kind of the white supremacist sort of uh, push-button, dog-whistle sorts of... Um, terminology that is used within the the political discourse today. So that the thing that's very interesting to me in the Young Lady Like series, looking at history, I did not expect 
for the history of 100 years ago to actually be so prescient in terms of uh, flashing forward and flashing back to where we are today. And looking at that time period in terms of you know, nativism, Americanism, all of these, the anti-immigration language, eugenics, all of these things that actually, as you said, are baked into the whole American experiment in, you know, in democracy that um, you, you have consistently across the course of history had moments when there are surges forward and then there are forces that have resisted. So these are all themes that I think people consider them to be new, but they're not. They have been a consistent part of the American narrative. And as you said, we still have unresolved issues. We still have family business to work out. I was reading, and this is not even dog whistle, about the history of Georgia and the movement of white suffragists. Leaders like Mary Latimer McClendon and her sister, Rebecca Latimer Felton, bemoaned the fact that Negroes, quote unquote, could vote on how tax dollars would be spent, but women could not. You know, there was a lot of racism. But I, I want to, Sam, get to you and talk a little bit about this kind of nativist, anti-immigrant record. This is something that I was just reading. Martha Jones has written a new book about uh, the history of the black vote and says that, you know, in 1920, 2020, some of the same issues are occurring. And you, Sam, are somebody who works on voter activism. How are you seeing this play out, this kind of idea that women's votes could be disenfranchised again in its own way? Yeah. So, you know, as someone who cannot vote, I don't have the privilege of voting because right now I'm a DACA recipient. But yeah, yeah. Um, Sam, let me stop you just a minute there, because I think that is fascinating that you are somebody who works on voters rights and you can't even vote yourself. How does that play out for you? So for me, it's like super important. Like I said, like I can't exercise the right to vote. But I also know the power of storytelling and the power of mobilizing my own community. As we know, um, the Latino and Hispanic community is one of the fastest growing minority populations here in the U.S. And so many times, like from personal experience, I have two brothers who are American citizens. And so empowering them to know that even though my parents haven't had the right to vote or myself, Teaching others is a powerful tool, especially when you can educate your community, when you can educate other folks to step up and to push and to, you know, use their power to change what's going on. Because a lot of times when people don't know their power, they can't really create the change that we want to see. And so that's been a really big push that, you know, not just myself, but so many members of my community, other young Dreamers, like we all participate in pushing those who can vote in our Latino and Hispanic communities to exercise that right. Well, you're talking about Latino and Hispanic communities. We talked a little bit earlier about the uh, the suburban mom community, and as Pearl said, not so well defined. This is part of what has become of American politics. Of course, the strategy is considering voting blocks as monolithic in some kind of way. Pearl, what gets lost when we think of the women's vote as this monolithic, everybody wants the same thing? Well, I think we we don't get at the solutions for the issues that the women want, right? So if we're talking about or, or saying that women are concerned about education as a blanket statement. Mm-hmm. Well, education for a black woman even a middle-class black woman comparison to a white middle-class um, woman look, may look different. 
where her children go to school, the quality of the schools. We know about, about redlining. We know about the challenges that Black families have um, with finding quality education. So dealing with those type of issues require very different types of solutions. Um, so to not get at who these women are and what is at the root of their issues really does not allow us to have effective policy solutions. Well, and in these discussions about how politicians tend to appeal to women and try to appeal to them, there is specifically a certain type of affluent white suburban female voter. We've already established that they're going for right now. So what does that mean for women on the margins? Um, Sam, I know you don't like the term marginalized, but what do you think? How do you react to that kind of messaging? So if you're just focused on speaking to one certain kind of issue for that suburban demographic, right, which happens so much and when you're new, we don't speak to certain people, you don't mention their issues, you miss out on the opportunity to have that community like show up for you, believe in you, trust you. And I think that that's been missing a lot. Like, you know, when you think about Georgia also, like it's such a binary place that sometimes the Latino community, Hispanic communities are often left out of discussions that, you know, are focused on policies or race or different things. So I think that there's a great opportunity to focus in on the nuances of different communities. And that's that's something that is often left out of, you know, any conversation in politics. I want to just um, pick up on something that Sam said, and that is the importance of representation. I think that what we're seeing um, based on what happened in 2018 and increasingly in 2020 is that the landscape of electoral representation is changing tremendously. There are more and more women and more and more diverse women who are running for electoral office themselves. And this is very similar to what happened in the progressive era where women got involved in politics because they felt as if those that were in the mainstream were not dealing with, as Pearl said, the issues that are important. So when we see the diversity of women and the diversity of voices and actually the diversity of points of view, we still have within the U.S. Congress only 23 percent of all elected officials at the national level are women. So we still have a long way to go. But I do believe that the more engaged women are in the electoral process. And um, as Sam said, it doesn't necessarily have to be voting literally, although voting is important, or running for office. There are so many ways that all of us in our communities can be involved, can be engaged, can be activated to make sure that all those voices and those voices of diversity are heard and do, in fact, get to affect the platforms. We're going to take a quick break, but be back for more of this panel discussion with Dr. Pearl Dow, Sam Ramirez Herrera, and Sandy Ratley. For more on what women's activism and women's voting looks like today, I'm Virginia Prescott. That's when On Second Thought continues. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. In 2017, the Women's March drew between three and five and a half million people in the United States to stand up for women's rights. Everybody's welcome here. No hate. No fear. Everybody's welcome here. No hate. No fear. 
And in 2019, 35 women were sworn in as representatives of the 116th Congress, the most women as well as the most racially and ethnically diverse class ever in congressional history. We're picking up on a panel discussion with social entrepreneur and activist Sam Ramirez Herrera, PBS's Unladylike 2020 executive producer, Sandy Ratley, and Emory University political science professor, Dr. Pearl Dow. I asked Pearl whether all those women in Congress have made a difference in policy. Well, yes, I I think we see a much broader type of policy prescription when we see women elected. Um, So if we look at the Congress over the last few years, where we've seen this increasing number of women, even if they have not been passed in the Senate, we see that the House has attempted to tackle these issues. So we see the issues around environmental justice, health care, particularly um, women of color and health. So we see these very um, tangible type of policies that sometimes we don't talk about on a national level. Uh, Women may talk about it amongst themselves. We see particularly women in communities addressing these issues. I have been very pleased to see that pol- those policies, um, but the challenge has been that they have been stalled, that they do not go beyond the House. And so depending on what happens in this election cycle, um, if the Senate is to flip, it is likely that we will see some of these issues become actual pieces of legislation that has been passed. What do you think politicians think women want and what do they actually want? You know, some politicians, when we look at them, there are some that are still very traditional. And when we listen to what they say, some of them don't want to hear from women. Um, Some of them have been very clear about that. If we look at some of the the political ads, what has been said in legislative bodies, there are some men that are still very sexist and feel that women should be these suburban um, housewives. And when we talk about just these terms that we use to define women, particularly even talking about even though we know we're talking about white women, they're still talking about this idea of this docile domestic type of woman, right? Um, And so I think that we have that, but then we also have men who are, I think, you know, we should give them credit, they are attempting to get it right. I think that there are men who are following the lead of women. Um, I think we have to acknowledge that for many people, that it is new to think about women differently. Um, It's sad to say that in 2020, but that is the case. And so I think that there are men who are um, politicians who have stepped back and have attempted to follow the lead of women and attempted to learn. But what is happening is that it is not, it doesn't go fast enough, right? Our institutions that are designed not to change. And so I think to Sandy's point, that is why we need more representation of women racially, ethnicity, class, education level to really get these institutions to shift and move at a much faster pace. Mm-hmm. I want to pick up on your what you said about terminology. There are terms that we use in daily language that are pejorative towards women, uh, and they're now being reclaimed, you know, terms like, I think, bossy, for example, or nasty women. So in a similar vein, Sandy, you used the term unladylike for your series. What is that communicating? Well, um, there was a journalist, uh, her name was Louise Bryant, who in the early 1900s said, I do not want to be called a lady. Um, I want to be human. I mean, it's, it's almost in, in some ways um, kind of a counterpoint to the 1851 statement by uh, Sojourner Truth. And I think, again, that um, 
women not too long ago actually could have been arrested for wearing pants in public. Um, that women, when they got married, it was in many places against the law to continue to work as a married woman. And so this is part of our historical record, not that long ago, 100, 100 years ago. So that in some ways, women felt like they either had a choice to not get married, remain single, and have somewhat of a professional life, but you could not do those two things together. So basically what this woman Louise Bryant was saying, and others have said since, that um, ladylike women rarely make history, that I think that what we're looking at is the idea of women who were bound by principle and were, were leading by courage and were not, didn't feel constrained by the, um, by the dominant ethos or the standards of what was so-called normalcy for the behavior of women and decided to step out. I mean, the, the first film we did was about Bessie Coleman, who's from um, Arlington, Texas, who both of her parents were sharecroppers. She picked cotton and then decided, <laughs> decided, hearing about women in Europe who flew, decided that she was going to raise money and get on a steamer and go to Paris to learn how to fly. So I'm asking her biographer, you have to explain, if you can, to me, how did she go from picking cotton to flying? How did she do that? And the way Bessie Coleman described it is while she was picking cotton, she was looking up and watching birds. And so to me, that's just the story of women who can, or people, but we're talking about women in this particular context, who can see beyond the constraints of their circumstances. And if that means being characterized as being so-called unladylike, so be it. <laughs> because that's the only way change is going to happen. Sam, I want to turn to you and talking about women, we do, of course, need to acknowledge the difference between gender and sex. And want to make sure that we have include non-binary and trans women in this discussion as well, because they have traditionally been left out. But what do we need to do to move all these stories to the forefront of our history? We need to first and foremost listen. And I think that the most important thing is to have like an open heart, to have open ears, and to have the courage to ourselves like share our stories right i think it's like so important that as human beings we are more open to listening to other people that don't look like us and as human beings like we should also be open enough to share our own stories i feel like sometimes like so many people hold back from showing up in the world from sharing their story from pursuing the things that they want to live out you don't always have to be the, you know, you don't always have to be an intellectual. You don't have to have like all of these, you know, all the money in the world. You know, you don't have to be like everybody else. You just have to show up with your whole self, with open ears, with an open heart and with open eyes and listen to each other. And when you have the opportunity to bring other stories to the forefront, do it. Do it and, you know, shine them as big as you can. Use YouTube, use TikTok, use Twitter, use Facebook, use Vimeo like we're using right now. But just put it out there. Like we all have the power in our hands now. Like technology has evolved so much. 
stories can be put out there. We could tell our own story. We could tell our neighbor's story. We could tell the story of the woman across the street. Like we all have that power and we just have to have the courage and the tenacity and the resilience and the action. Just like go out there and just tell your story and tell other stories. That is a beautiful place to end. We just have a minute left. Um, anybody else want to add anything to that? If you can quickly, either Sandy or Pearl. Well, I think that I am very excited about this moment in which we're talking about the women's suffrage movement and we're hearing more about the other women that were there and that did work in fear of their losing their life and understanding solutions that, let's take, for example, what happened to the suffrage movement. Let's not make that same mistake by ignoring certain women that we cannot come up with solutions for all women. I want to thank you all so much, Dr. Pearl Dow, political science professor at Emory University. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And Sandy Ratley, executive producer of the PBS series Unladylike 2020. Thank you very much. It was so much fun being with all of you tonight. Thank you. Also, thanks to you, Sam Ramirez Herrera, Atlanta-based social entrepreneur and activist. What a pleasure speaking with you tonight. Thank you. That was my conversation from a GPB panel commemorating the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment and Women's Equality Day. My guests were Sandy Ratley, Sam Ramirez Herrera, and Dr. Pearl Dow. Coming up, what respect means in 2020. A conversation with Otis Redding's wife and daughter. They're out with a new children's book called Respect. That's when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Before Aretha Franklin made a hit with this, it was this. That is Macon George's own Otis Redding, who wrote Respect and many soul classics before he left the world too soon at the age of 26. Respect is one of Rolling Stone magazine's top five songs of all time. Aretha Franklin transformed Redding's civil rights era demand for dignified treatment into a female empowerment anthem. Well, now the Redding family is breathing new life into the song again, turning those memorable lyrics into a picture book for children called respect. Zelma Redding and Carla Redding Andrews are with us from Jones County to talk about the new book. Zelma is president and founder of the Otis Redding Foundation. Hello, Zelma. How you doing? I'm fine. Well, I'm thrilled to have you with me. And Carla is vice president and executive director of the foundation. Carla, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, we're delighted to be with you this morning. Respect that song as so embedded in American culture. I mean, everybody knows how to spell R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And now you're handing this off to a new generation in this book, illustrated by Rachel Moss. This is part of the Otis Redding Foundation's educational mission. But this is also from a man who dropped out of high school at 15 years old, Otis Redding. How does this fit in with the mission of the foundation? Our mission for the foundation is progress through education, enlightenment through music. So um, that is so um, relevant right now in this day and time to teach the importance of respect and how to give respect and to get respect. Uh, one of the things that I always wanted to do was carry on what he was trying to do. His vision was to help with education, um, 
to help underprivileged kids and not just black kids, all kids. So you all live on the ranch, as you put it, in Jones County. Yes, yes, he does too. He's buried there. He loved Georgia. Well, the, the ranch is the place that he would come home to, Zelma, and you were the woman he was coming home to when he sang the song. You know that when I get when I walk through that door, I want a little respect. So that's was, right. What does the song mean for you? It means a lot to me. Um, you know, the lyrics is so strong, and when Aretha did it, she just changed them around. But I mean, she was still with the same vibe. But I tell you, it it means a lot to me because if we had a little bit more respect for each other, this would be a much better place to live in. Well, the new Respect book, picture book is about a contemporary African-American family, little girl, her brother playing, you know, they're playing dress up, they're painting, they're doing sports, dancing, playing in like the doctor's office. Her parents are f- supporting her full range of imagination. Carla, I wonder what, what your memory is of your father. What was he like uh, as you were playing as a kid? Well, you know, when, when dad was home, it was it was really uh, an exciting time for us because we got to experience his love of ice cream. Um, and he loved to be on, on the ranch and, and just swimming in, in this huge swimming pool that, that we had and, you know, farming with the animals and he loved dogs. And, um, so we, we just had a, a good time and we knew when, when dad was home that we could, we could play and run outside and do anything we wanted to do, get dirty as we wanted to get, because, you know, that's just what dad let us do. Um, of course, mom was like, don't get dirty, sit down somewhere, um, play, but don't get dirty. And, uh, so we, we always remember when dad was home that it was, it was out of the norm, uh, to do things that we didn't normally get to do, especially on the ranch. That sounds like a better deal when your dad was home, frankly. (laughs) It was fun. It was lots of fun. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. I got to tell you, it was. Well, thinking about respect, I mean, that song was considered pretty revolutionary back in 1967 when it became a hit for Aretha. It was unapologetic, you know, uncompromising. She's not asking for respect. She was demanding it. So, Zelma, how how did your husband feel about, you know, losing that song to Aretha Franklin on some level? Oh, he, he, he was really excited about it. And I think if Otis had lived, he always put in his brain that he and Aretha was going to do an album together. Hmm. And um, they were friends. He, he said at the Monterey Pop, he said, I'm, I'm going to try to do this song. He, when he played, through, he said, but this little, this little girl just took it away from me. <laughs> but he was really happy that you know, she recognized what he was doing because mm-hmm. Otis was a great songwriter. Well, yes. And songwriting is, let's say, respect not his the only Otis Redding hit. Here's just a little bit of many more memorable songs. These arms are mine. Come back, come back, baby. I've had enough. I left my home in Georgia. 
He was so gifted as a songwriter as well as a singer, and songwriting is a big part of the mission at the Otis Redding Foundation. But music has changed so much. How do, how do kids at camp listen to or respond to these songs made, what, 50 plus years ago? Oh, they, you know, that's one of the things that, that we always stress and teach. On day one of camp, we make sure and teach the real relevance and the importance of the legacy of Otis Redding, that he's set this footprint for us to be able to do these camps and for kids to be creative and, and self-expressive in their own right. You know, they just bask in knowing the geniusness of Otis Redding and all he did in such a short amount of time. And I think they, they look at themselves as as almost you know newcomers uh, in his footsteps to become like the next Otis Redding and and we encourage them and hope we do get the next Otis Redding out of here. It's also the way that he turned things. I, I read a story about a disc jockey calling him Mister Pitiful because his songs were so slow tempo, and of course <laughs> he, he turned that that around and made it into a hit record. Oh, <laughs> you he can always do things like that. You know, if you tell him something, it's going to stick in the brain. I never will forget he came. He was over. He was uh, in Europe and he was there for a month. So when he got back, I was so happy to see him and the kids were too. And um, I said, oh, I wrote you this nice poem. And that was dreams to remember. Mm-hmm. And he said, now, you know, you're not a songwriter. I said, OK, just. Just the poem, you know, and I never knew he recorded it until he died. Oh, my goodness. So I hope you got some writing credit on that, Zalma. Oh, I got a writing credit and my check. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you were writing poems for him, but did, did you think like he was writing songs for you? Because, all right, I couldn't help oh, but notice. Yeah. But Respect says, I ain't going to do you wrong while you're gone. Ain't going right. to do you wrong because I don't want to. I mean... This is a man who was on the road all the time, on stage all the time. Was that threatening to you? No, never been threatening to me. My husband, you know, it's one thing about Otis Redding. He loves Elma. And that's where I respected him and I didn't worry. I knew just like he left, he was coming back. So we had an understanding. He going to call home five times a day and say, what you doing? And I'm like, what I was doing when you called an hour and a half ago, same thing, taking care of your kids and cleaning. (laughs) But we had an understanding. My guests are Zelma Redding and Carla Redding Andrews. They're with us from Jones County to talk about Respect. It's a new children's picture book with illustrations of songs written by Mr. Otis Redding, husband and father, respectively, of my guests. Zelma, right? If I read it correctly, you were just 15 years old when you met him at, at the Douglas Theater, I think, in Macon. Have I got that right? That's, I was 15, almost 16. And, and he was still a young man, only 26 years old when he died in this plane crash on December 10th, 1967. Well, you were a widow with three children at such a young age and had to manage all his affairs in music rights, royalties. Sitting on the dock of the bay was just a huge hit after he died. So you're shifting roles from a woman who needs respect, needs to respect her husband when he came home, to the woman running the show. And I'm still running the show. Yeah. I've had um, several health issues, but I'm still, I'm strong. 
then I've got a strong woman behind me, which is Carla. Well, Carla, what was that like to see this modeled by your mother at such a young age for you, that strength? Mom and I have always had a um, a really close bond. Um, once we lost Dad, it's almost like I had to really almost grow up really fast because it was it was me that was really trying to console and take care of her and doing things to help her as much as I could when I saw that she, you know, was was just in in hard grief and then would pull herself out of it. So I always keep that in the back of my mind that no matter what you go through, you can always pull yourself up. And she's done that for years and has held on to this legacy that has never and never will be tarnished as long as we are able to to work together as a family um, and control it. So everything that we do with dad's legacy or even with the foundation, we understand that she is she is looking over our shoulders and it better be a plus perfect or we don't do it at all. Hmm. So it, it, it's been, um, you know, real gratifying to me to be able to grow up and to continue to work together and really kind of feed off of everything that she didn't necessarily teach me, but that I was paying attention to what she was doing. Mm-hmm. So the teaching wasn't like, let me show you how to do it. But it was to me paying attention to this is how it needs to be done. Hmm. Now, Otis Redding sadly died so young and is imprinted in our minds as this beautiful and beautifully talented singer and composer. But he didn't live to see a lot of the tumult of, of the late 1960s, the assassinations and the end of the Vietnam War and so many other things that have happened since. Who would Otis Redding be today? He always said, I don't want to get old on the road. You know, I want to be home. I want to be with my family. I want to hunt, want to fish. So I think what he would be doing is really, he, he in his heart, he was going to build a studio for kids to come on the ranch. He was going to be producing He was going to be songwriting. That was in his mind long before he passed. He was going to always give back. He was a good-hearted person, sweet man. I'm also thinking of that song, Respect Became a Civil Rights Anthem. What do you think he would think of what's being called the new fight for civil rights, the Black Lives Matter movement, the protest movement going on now? uh, I think he would still be involved in respect black lives all lives matter to Otis Redding you know black lives do matter but all lives matter and I think he would be really involved in that situation today yeah I I think um my dad was such a a people person and such a a person of fairness for all people Mm -hmm. um I think that he 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 would probably take this song Respect and redo it. And it may be some anthem to to reunite the world again. This new anthem to to teach the world about 
that respect is mandatory on all sides. It doesn't, it doesn't have any bearing on economic status. It doesn't have any bearing on race, but we've all got to respect each other. And I think the world would be a better place. And I think that the, one of the most important things he would do is would start with kids because he, he, he loved teaching kids that there, there is a better way. I, I made it and you can do it too. There was nothing that I don't think my father felt that he couldn't do. And I think he would empower kids to, to feel the same way. Growing up, I mean, he told his family, according to my uncle, from like the age of eight, that he was going to be a star, that he was going to be a superstar. And you'd hear his music on the radio. He he knew what he wanted to do and he did it. And he's still and, doing it. Yeah, he's still doing it. My family... We're going to continue his legacy no matter what. There have been generations raised listening to Otis Redding's songs. And now respect, not really the guiding principle of how we interact with each other in, in, in public anyway. So for kids, what do you want the takeaway of this book, Respect, to be? I think the takeaway should be, First of all, to to recognize uh, Otis Redding and his legacy, but also to see in the book the illustrations that show how kids and and brothers and sisters and regardless of color um, get and demand respect, and you have to know how to give respect in order to receive respect. And I think this book. Uh, teaches young boys and young girls that this is what you need as you go through life now, um, mm-hmm. you know, with, with a, at a young age, but you got to have it at the end of your life as well. I think we start need to try to live together as people. I know with me being a widow at 25, raising my family and my kids and then adopting one when a week old, it's nowhere that I can go that people don't respect me. And you have to earn respect. Just try to work together and love each other. And that's basically what he would be doing, and that's basically what I do now. I've got dreams, dreams to remember. Selma Redding, I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to thank you for having me on this show. Zelma Redding, she's an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and widow of Otis Redding, carrying on his legacy as president and founder of the Otis Redding Foundation. And Carla Redding Andrews, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. We're delighted. Thank you. Carla Redding Andrews is Mr. Redding's daughter and vice president and executive director of the foundation. And don't forget my assistant, Miss Layla. We cannot forget her assistant, Miss Layla, who not only helped hook this up today, but made it sound a lot better. Oh, she hooks up a lot of things. And she is so dedicated. You can find more on the book Respect at gpb.org slash OST. And in the background, the song that Zelma mentioned that she wrote, I've Got Dreams to Remember by the great Otis Redding. Of mine, they don't fool me. Why did he hold you so tenderly? I've got.
I was once told that like any good dip, there are eight layers to a southern goodbye. So let's dig in. You may have heard about state budget cuts in Georgia and shrinking revenue for public media during the pandemic. Well, GPB is not immune. And given its mission to cover more news and politics on digital platforms at this critical time, On Second Thought is being put on hiatus, at least until the end of the year. We're glad to report that all the staff is staying on at GPB. I'm going to continue doing community events like virtual author talks and an upcoming PBS book event with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser on September 24th. I also have some other interviews and projects cooking, so please do watch this space. I must say, I will really miss working with my amazing colleagues. It is the alchemy, creativity, and mutual respect of this team that has made OST a joy to work on. Producer Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer Amelia Brock. Engineer Jesse Neiswanger. And engineer Jake Troyer. All of us are grateful for the kind words and posts from people who appreciate hearing long-form conversations and big ideas that we've covered on OST. It really isn't an easy time to be in the media, and your generosity of spirit means everything. We welcome and invite you to share your favorite segments on the On Second Thought Facebook page or on Twitter at OST Talk, or send us an email to onsecondthought at gpb.org. Our listeners mean the world to us and have sustained and encouraged us. We appreciate your time and attention. From all of us at OST. Thank you for any and all the time you've spent listening to On Second Thought from GPD. I've got dreams.